I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. So I'm here with Brett King. Uh, he's a longtime friend and collaborator, but also one of the, I, I guess, the greatest disruptors in the fintech space uh-huh. these days. And, uh, I guess so. We're here in your new hometown, New York. Yeah. Uh, Welcome so to New York. <laughs> we've got taxis going past. And Frank Sinatra uh, playing. Frank Sinatra playing. Uh, so Brett, tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking about lately. Uh, well, you know, I, I started this journey back in, I guess, 2006 about how the internet mobile was going to disrupt banking. And I guess that what what I've been working on is seeing that vision through, um, really sort of focusing on what tactically is sort of part of that ecosystem that's going to change, how we're going to change the way we think about financial services, how we're going to change the way we think about our money, um, how we're going to change our behaviour, all of that stuff. But for me, I've got a, I've got a startup called Movin, um, which is uh, what we say is the world's first downloadable bank account. So you download an app. You sign up in the app, and um, right now you still have to wait for a plastic card before you can use it, but very soon you won't even need to do that. So you'll be able to download the app, sign up in a couple of minutes, and be able to use it at a store later that day. That's our our vision. Plus, this app is smart enough to coach you every day on how you're using your money and whether it's uh, you're you're being financially healthy or not, like a almost like a fitness app, like Fitbit or or health kit. Data must be a big part of this. How do you leverage data and behavior to sort of streamline the the way this app operates? So I think um, what we realized is that right now the two major things you do uh, as far as your day-to-day use of money is you use a card and you want to know how much money you've got. What's my balance? That's the two most requested or two most high-frequency types of interactions people have with their bank account. So we turn that into an app that really informs you um, about how your spending behavior sort of impacts your overall financial health. And if you think about it, most people are not very good at budgeting. Uh, I don't know if you're any good at budgeting, Mike, but uh, um, (laughs) nine out of 10 people can't budget. Um, And so there used to be this old method we used to do for budgeting called the envelope method. And so you'd set aside these envelopes with bits of cash in them for different expenses. So you'd have cash for rent, cash for groceries, etc. Um, and the, object, the theory was that if you had, you know, just use those envelopes for, for those uh, specific expenses, you'd have some money left over which you could save for vacation or, or Christmas or whatever. Um, and, um, but 9 out of 10 people couldn't use the envelope method. So now we have these things like tools like Mint and others which are, uh, you know, enable you to save for goals through an app or digitally. The problem is, that's like having a digital envelope. Yeah. You know, nine out of 10 people still can't use that. So what we wanted to do was create something more akin to the Fitbit style thing. That is, is think about your money and your money health in this way, is that uh, ultimately you've got a, a so much income coming in and, and changing how much you earn is harder than changing what you spend. So you have so much money coming in, and then you've got to determine how you spend that. Yeah. And, and, and if you spend it wisely, you have some cash left over. What happens though is day to day, we go out for meals, we get an Uber, you know, taxi to work because it's raining or whatever, and we start doing these things, and we build up unconscious habits, 
And, and you know, when you suddenly find out that you're spending $250 a month on Starbucks, you go, holy crap, you know? Um, and so it's those moments of awareness we try to create wrapped around the payment instance. So when you pay, you get a real-time receipt and it will tell you whether you're above or below your typical spending right. and where you're at in terms of that category. So if it's dining out or taxis, you'll see your subtotal already for the month for that category. And, and you know, you have these aha moments like, I've already spent $300 on, on dining out. I've already spent this much on Uber this month. So it's kind of like financial mindfulness. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, and so we, we build this into the ecosystem. And then what we start working on is we start working on that spend savings velocity, trying to improve your savings velocity. And we do that through things like impulse savings moments where we can say, hey, Mike, you're uh, $200 below your typical spending for the month. That's great. Why don't you save that money? So we, we now start to mix in behavioral elements of um, you know, positive behavior, positive gamification, if you like, to, to things like those savings moments. Uh, the other thing I thought was really interesting was the way that you're reinventing uh, credit uh, by using contextual cues. Could, could you explain a little bit about sure. how that works? So if you think about the way we use uh, a credit card or an overdraft today, um, there's basically two, and I'm not talking big ticket items like you know, taking a loan to buy a car or mortgage, but day to day there's really only two reasons we use a credit card. The first is we go into a store and we're going to want to buy something like groceries and we find out we don't have enough money in our account so we have to pull out our credit card. Or we go into a store and there's something that we would like to buy but we don't have enough money today. And so things like, you know, buy, buy an iPhone or a new flat screen TV or, um, you know, a new computer. So they're essentially the two contextual, contextual um, um, behaviors where credit is required. So what we've done is just wrap that into context. So we've said, all right, so it, we don't actually need a credit card. What you need is um, someone to spot you some emergency cash when you don't have enough cash to do your day-to-day -day grocery shopping, for yeah. example. Or you have a list of things that you would like to buy, your wish list items, so you can create a wish list. And we can fund those wish list items based on context. So if you put an iPhone in your wish list item, then we know when you go into an Apple store that we can offer you credit for that uh, iPhone if, you, if we think you can handle it. Right. right. Well, it's interesting when you look at a number of, especially in China, a lot of the e-commerce players are starting to do loans especially for small business like Alibaba does. Sure. Because they sort of know your behavior, they, they know your credit worthiness. Uh, so finance is a, an inevitable outcome. Uh, mobile, mobile is such a great platform for this because mobile not only allows us to provide a device or provide personal context for you, right? That's more meaningful to you. But we can also measure where you are you know, what you're doing, yeah. your behavior. Um, we can start to look at things um, from a, a longitudinal basis instead of just uh, on a transactional basis. We can start to see whether or not um, social elements have a mix in your spending behavior. Um, you know, there's it, so many different parameters that we can take, which you just don't get through a piece of plastic. What, where does this fit into the broader unbundling of finance at the moment? I mean, it, it seems that it's not just banking and savings, but also payments, uh, loans, almost everything now is splintering into different apps and platforms. So what we've we've done is we've taken five products, um, a checking account or a current account, a savings account, an overdraft, a credit card and a fixed deposit or we call them in the states here a CD, a certificate of deposit, and we've eliminated all of those products for an app which is contextual. Okay? And so by, ex by putting experience design into the mix here, 
and by changing the way um, you deliver experientially the utility of banking, whether it's a payment or whether it's credit or whether it's savings, by changing the um, by still delivering that utility but in a different context. Um, you don't need the products that you had before. So those five products I mentioned disappear. You've now just got an app. Yeah. That uh, sure it helps you save, it helps you pay, and it offers you emergency cash or credit when you need it. But we don't have those products. So um, that's one side of the equation where you're starting to think about redesigning or rebundling or unbundling um, products. The other is that if you take something like Lending Club, who offers small ticket loans here in the US, fourth largest tech IPO in uh, US history, um, they um, are now becoming a serious competitor to banks in terms of offering credit facilities. Their loans are cheaper, their interest rates are better, and they have lower default risks than the best banks in the United right. States because of their data model, right? So this is, um, they're attacking this on a couple of fronts, not just the experience and access to credit, but they're attacking the data model behind credit as well. Um, and they're showing that with data, they're much better at assessing credit than banks have been at this for hundreds of years, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. So, but you, you still have a, an interesting split between innovation happening at the application side and the infrastructure that still powers all of this. And you know, even you yourselves have to work with banks. Uh, we do. We have a bank partner. We don't own a bank, banking charter. Right. So we, our bank partners are a bank in Kansas City called CBW Bank. Um, actually, um, there's a small um, you know, uh, central bank of Weir is the, uh, right. the name. It was a small Kansas City bank, um, uh, mainly you know, 105 years old or something, um, mainly uh, provided uh, um, help to farmers in, in the district. And this ex-Google guy comes along and buys this bank. Uh, purposely for the reason of wrapping, wrapping an API around this banking license. Really? Yeah, so okay. uh, Suresh Ramamurti, I should put you in touch with him actually, yeah. so he's an interesting guy. Um, so, you know, they're a bank partner that works very well for us because they think they think we'd like to work with startups. Um, and then we're rolling out, uh, we've rolled out in New Zealand already with Westpac, so Movin is live there in New Zealand. Rolling out with TD in Canada. Right. So on the infrastructure side, are you are you seeing people innovating and disrupting the way it's happening at the application layer? Uh, I think um, it, it, I think you can separate the broad uh, changes. And there's uh, in the US, there's over eight thousand startups in yeah. fintech, right? So right now today, there are more fintech startups in the US than there are banks. That's terrifying. Right? And there's going to be probably more investment in fintech startups. There's probably going to be about thirty billion in investment in fintech startups in the US this year, wow. which is more than in bank transformation projects in the US. So there's only one possible outcome here, which is fintech companies take market share yeah. from traditional players. But where they're going to, what is happening? Most of the work. I would say 95% of the effort is at the front end, it, yeah. the distribution layer. So you're having a split between the core systems and the wires and the bank charters and risk and credit offering and basically what we call the manufacturing side of the business and the distribution side which is where the experience layers come in. And try as they might, banks are trying to keep up but they don't think, they still think like banks. So when they look at redesigning experience, they're looking at taking an existing product and service and digitizing it. Whereas someone like Movin, 
um, you know, or Stripe or Braintree or Venmo or Uber with their payment built into their app, thinks about this completely differently and so rethinks the design of the experience. So banks ultimately, um, you know, will still, there'll still be banks that survive, um, but, you know, you'll, you, they'll be measured, I think, increasingly on their ability to provide that experience. And so some banks will end up um, partnering with fintech companies, yeah. others will acquire them, like BBVA did with Simple and Cap One did with uh, Level. Um, you know, and, and I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that sort of collaboration across. Do you think others will go almost just purely into the background as massive, scaled-up wholesale operations? Well, how many of those can you support? Right. I mean, okay, sure. Well, only a couple. Right. right. Yeah, but exactly. they should they have to be global? Yeah. So um, you know, um, we we when we set out to do Movin and we started to get traction in the US and we wanted to go offshore, we were presented with this problem. We either have to buy a bank charter in every market we go into, because it's not like Facebook or Twitter. You can't just launch in a new country and launch a bank account. You know, there are, there are laws that restrict that. So uh, we either would have to go to every country and get a bank charter, which just on the capital adequacy requirements, which is the, the regulations around how much deposits you have to hold, for, for your customers would mean for 50 million customers you're talking about uh, 50 billion dollars in capital adequacy so no VC is ever going to fund that just to, for capital adequacy so we realized that the Facebook of banking or the uber of banking would not be a bank with charters it would be a startup sitting on top of other banks so the way we've set up moving is that we've got all these bank partners in different countries who provide our banking chart or a license and where the app that sits on top of that right so um, you know where do you think this is going to go to next with these new types of devices we've got I mean uh, I know you've built some integrations for these new wearables like yep. Apple watch and uh, you know, Android Wear. so how does this change the experience of, of how we use financial services uh, well, I think generally speaking, um, and I know we've discussed this a little bit before, but we're moving out of the app age right now. We're moving to this age of notifications and context. So whether it's through an Apple Watch or your, your smart glasses, you know, you, um, you know, the next iteration of Google Glass or HoloLens or whatever, or um, whether it's just notifications that are contextual in your uh, on your phone. Wait for this truck to the um, uh, we're starting to bite, um, find these bite-sized chunks of content or bite-sized uh, chunks of context yeah. which are tailored to the moment and location. So we don't look at the Apple Watch as a platform for putting moving as an app on. What we look at is what is the, the um, very quick interaction that we can have contextually that's more efficiently delivered on your wrist than it is through the phone, where it doesn't require you to actually integrate, interact with the app. You just it's glanceable insight or it's a very quick response so what we do is we have impulse savings we have the receipt these are the two experiences we deliver by the watch for the watch right now um, and maybe you know one will do is the the emergency cash um, where if you've set up parameters where you say yeah I would like you to spot me some emergency cash under these circumstances and then you, you just have to say accept or accept or decline so it literally is you know we're not thinking about this as an app on your wrist but the other thing that is really different about this ecosystem, particularly with the watch, 
is we're now also starting to um, get data from the watch that you can't get elsewhere. So you're starting to get you know, um, physical um, movement data, heart rate, all of this sort of data. So we're now also thinking about these wearable platforms as sensor nets that you know, can collect information. So for example, um, you know, is there a correlation between your physical health and how many steps a day you do um, um, versus your, uh, your spending habits? So for example, if we know you've got a problem with Uber um, and you're spending a lot of money on taxis, right? Could we then encourage you to get a city bike here or walk, which could combine your financial health and your physical health at the same time? So there's some correlations there. I, I don't want to you, take I thought, it to I, the I, end. I thought you were going to say if you notice someone's heart racing, they should, they should probably get a, <laughs> a limit put on uh, what they're allowed to spend in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's probably going to work as well. Yeah. But um, so I think we we look at the next uh, generation of these experiences as um, more about these moments in time where you can either provide insight um, to change someone's behavior or solve a problem very very quickly with context it's interesting that I mean everything we've spoken about and, and what you see changing everything it, it always goes back to mobile uh, and yet mobile operators are struggling to capture the value in, 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 the, in this ecosystem I mean I telcos the banks of, um, mm. <laughs> of their uh, ecosystem Look, we need we need those pipes, we need those yeah. wires, but is there value beyond that? And and I think banks and telcos face that same issue right now. They've invested huge amounts in infrastructure. Um, they've now maxed out their usefulness as networks, and now other people are coming on top of that and basically using those networks more efficiently than they've been able to use them. Yeah. Right. Um, for example, Netflix on top of uh, you know um, cable and, and data networks, much better at, 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 uh, at distributing content than the providers of the the networks. And and same with us and banks. You know, we're now sitting on top of the banking networks, doing better experiences than the banks can. Um, so, look um, at some point. Um, thankfully, uh, Moore's law and Gilder's law means that it's getting cheaper for telcos, um, you know, to provide uh, data, um, but only after they've invested in infrastructure. Uh, so, I, I look, um, it, it, it's going to be an interesting world um, how that changes. Obviously, over the next uh, five to ten years as the likes of Google and Facebook start deploying uh, their own networks and things like that, yeah. I think there's probably more of a chance that they will start to uh, consume some of those networks just as part of a, a global network because they'll see it as a platform for access to users. Well, they, they seem to certainly be playing a long game where they're fighting over these broad chunks of infrastructure on the web, you know, beyond just pipes. Mm, uh, absolutely. It, it's the way logistics are going to work, the way exactly. that uh, yeah, mass computation things, yeah. storage um, and uh, you know, I, I, when you look at the whole notification versus app battle, uh, in some ways Google, even though they haven't got a stronger play in wearables, have it, have really put a lot more investment behind. Right, this. Google now and yeah, their ecosystem. And now on tap that they yeah, announced yeah. IO. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, they're definitely, uh, I think, thinking about this, and they've built a, they've already built a uh, operating system for the Internet of Things as well. You yeah. Know? Um, and now, so you know, here's where there's some interesting convergence because when you start looking at technologies like the blockchain and Bitcoin, and you start looking at Internet of Things, if you start, if you think about um, different devices 
being able to interact from a payments perspective. For example, let's say you have a smart fridge at home that's able to order your groceries. Well, that fridge needs a wallet because it needs to be able to pay, right? Um, so you need to set up, do you set up a separate bank account for your fridge? Um, well, that could be quite difficult. Do you just link your credit card or debit card to that? Well, um, you know, that's one way of doing that. But in the future, with the ability to have such sort of dynamic payment ecosystems, the fact that you could spin up an instance of a wallet um, that's either very short term or could be a long term proposition, which is sending money from node to node, from one wallet to another, the existing bank system, which requires you to jump through hoops to identify yourself just to get access to a bank account, really doesn't work, yeah. right? It's not um, extensible enough. So as you start moving towards this, um, you know, sort of immediate real-time movement of money and these creation or instances of wallets, the blockchain looks a much better solution to that yeah. than the traditional ecos the traditional banking system. So well, I've seen some really interesting work that IBM and Samsung have done around this space where they're using the blockchain for uh, devices to communicate but also to trade. So eventually they can actually trade computing power between each other. Oh, that would be interesting. Like as a kind of a distributed model um, where it's not just you know the fridge buying things, it's the fridge potentially trading its own computation cycles to buy things. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 I was watching Kurzweil last night. He was talking about uh, you know when we have uh, you know we have access to um, computing power to enhance our <laughs> intelligence for our brain. That you know uh, we might need to bump up our IQ to three hundred for a, for two minutes to resolve. I, I, I heard him talk about this, and he was saying that uh, you know that Google would essentially give you exactly the right funny joke or anecdote to tell at that particular point in time. <laughs> But then, I, but then, you know, I asked him, I said, well, does that mean we're all going to be telling the same jokes? Right. Because, I mean, presumably, yeah, 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 yeah. presumably we all get the top 10 same search results. So it's, it's, it's kind of be terrible that everyone's first date would play out exactly the same, yeah, Exactly, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, that's conformity, right? But uh, yeah. I think um, it, it's an exciting world. I think the, 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 the key to understand this is that in the future, every business is a technology business, yeah. right? Um, even a commodity business, because of the you know trade and uh, you know uh, optimal uh, um, you know utilization of commodities as a technology business. So you're either you're either a digital business, a technology business, or you're dead. You know that's essentially. If you're a, you know a big bank or a big telco or some other big traditional retailer, how do you reinvent your culture to be more digital? So, as, as opposed to just partnering with people that are. Obviously, um, I get asked this all the time as a thought leader in the banking space. Yeah, um, it's kind of and, the holy grail question, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I've, I've come down to this. I've said, look, if your CEO is a geek and infuses the business with um, you know, technology DNA, then you're probably going to be okay. If he isn't, then you're probably going to be in trouble. And it's pretty much that simple. Right? You either have to believe that technology is infused in everything you do, so you have to build a technology capable business, or you're going to try and find, you're going to try and put technology as this expertise or competency on the side of the business that you need to start building. Right? Now the problem with the competency approach is that it, it, it never really becomes part of your innate ability to respond. 
Yeah. It's just it's limited to this team on the side, and they're competing for budget and resources against the traditional ecosystem, which will always win out because it's had had longer time to incubate. So uh, th that's essentially it. You know, your CEO has to be a geek and has to, or <laughs> has to be a convert to uh, to the digital world. Brett, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash. Between worlds.